Hello and welcome to the third of this series of podcasts brought to you by AGRA, the Association of Genealogists and Researchers and Archives, the body representing professional genealogists. I'm Nick Serple and today we'll be looking at researching ancestors in Wales. Now many people find they struggle with Welsh ancestry, mainly because of a lack of understanding of the history and makeup of Welsh society and the effect that had on the available records. Our panel today comprises four professional genealogists, Eria Daniels, Emma Jolly, Jill Thomas and John Colclough, all of whom have a wealth of experience in Welsh research. Chairing today's discussion is AGRA's chairman, Anthony Marr. Thank you, Nick, and I'm glad to be here chairing this discussion into Welsh ancestry. For somebody who has no Welsh ancestry themselves that I've so far discovered, it's a fascinating topic because I've had to look at my wife's family who hail from the north of Wales, and I found so many difficulties in doing that. So it's a very useful opportunity to be able to discuss with some very expert people about how I might be able to get further with those things. So just to start off with, perhaps Ailey, can you tell us a little bit about the the sort of cultural and social issues that we might come across with Welsh research that might be different to other parts of the UK? I'm sure you can all place Wales on a map and it doesn't look very large at all, does it really? But I think when you start your research, you can immediately tell there's a different feel to it altogether. The reason for that is because Wales does have a history which may be subsumed to some point within the broader history of the United Kingdom. It has, I'm sure as you start to research, you could immediately see there are differences in terms of the language that you may see on a map, for example, with the place names. And that's because Wales does have a different history, which is separate from England, shall we say, although it's totally intertwined. The difference in the culture and in broader social history probably, I think it's fair to say, stems from the Welsh language. And the Welsh language is pretty old. It's been here for quite a while on these islands. And it's still here. Broadly, it was spoken by the majority of people in an area of the United Kingdom we know today as Wales, probably as their first language right up until the 19th century. And that really does shape the culture and the background to the history you will be researching, because your ancestors will have lived in a certain part of Wales at a specific point in history. And so they will be influenced by the social forces around them, as well as the cultural everyday traditions and customs around them. So was the social setup of Wales, is that very agricultural in part and industrial in others? Is that fair to say? It is broadly. By the end of the 19th century, yes, there was a definite agricultural or rural and industrial split. And that came about, that started mid to late 18th century. So before then, Wales was generally a land of farmers, farm labourers, fishermen on the coast, with some small-scale industry, some very small farm slate mining enterprises or coal mining enterprises, but generally predominantly rural, until it took off, industry took off in the 19th century, and then you saw dramatic changes. Emma, perhaps you can help us. I find Welsh place names, and this I'm sure this will develop as we talk about the language, but place names in Wales can be difficult, can be confusing. I find sometimes that they seem to have multiple occurrences in different parts of Wales. 
So how do you get on with Welsh place names? There are a lot of the place names can be intimidating to English speakers because they're so long. I think we just get quite overwhelmed. We look at it and we just see all these consonants and we can't really work out what's going on. So the number one thing you have to do is break down the word. I mean, I use websites like Januki and there are other websites to help learn more about the area. And you've got to think about Wales's place names. They come from the Welsh language, but there's also um, influence from English, French, Irish, Flemish, Norse, Latin. Normally, though, Welsh speakers, so whereas English speakers will be intimidated by place name, Welsh speakers will usually recognise the meaning because it's made up of words. They can provide a clue as to the area and what it looks like. There is an issue with spelling variants and place names changing over time, particularly where there's, say, anglicisation, which could take place for economic or sociocultural reasons. I've found place names for my family. I've found 10 different spelling variations, for example, for one place. You've got to be aware of all the different variations that occur. One of my Jones branches, they lived in a hamlet of a place called Thanrin, which is in the Macunlith area in Montgomery, the former uh, Montgomery, now Powys. And that's called Blindglesserch. When you break that down, so there's Blind, which is before or the source of, and then the Glesserch, which is a small stream. You break it down into those two separate words and it's much clearer to understand. And quite a lot of the place names are topographical. And then others are based on saints or the, the church that's there. So you look at the church and the saint that it's dedicated to. And sometimes it's not always the name of the saint, but it could be something that's associated with the saint, which again will give you an idea, not just about the place, but about the culture of that place the cultural and religious values that your family in that parish were likely to have been exposed to. So that's interesting that many of these names are topographical. Is that perhaps a reason why you seem to get repeated names, villages of the same name in different areas? I've come across that, certainly. Yeah, and also, again, the, the saints' names, because if, if, if there's a lot of um, Davids, <laughs> or variation on, on the word David. If you want to um, use a dictionary, there's a really good online dictionary from the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. I hope I'm pronouncing this properly. You have to correct me. Gariada. It's a Welsh English dictionary. It's, it's really, really good. So you could put in some of these place names and have a look. But if, if you're looking at Than, so L-L-A-N, um, that's something church or saint related. You mentioned about a lot of these place names derived from saints and churches. So Perhaps, Jill, can you tell us something about the church, the religious setup in Wales? We hear a lot about Welsh chapels, and I get confused about what are we talking about there. Is that a particular type of nonconformity, or is it a, a sort of um, an overall arching for all sorts of nonconformity in Wales? Well, I think within the nonconformist communities in Wales, there are as many different varieties and sects as there are days in the month. Looking at particular Baptists, strict Baptists, Anabaptists, Unitarians. Calvinist, Methodist. I could go on and on and on, but I won't. You'll be relieved to know. The 1851 religious census was, although probably overstated, estimated that up to 80% of worshippers in Wales considered themselves to be chapel goers. If I use an example, comparing two port cities, Swansea and Southampton, Southampton, of course, being on the southern English coast, in terms of places of worship uh, registered in in the census, 
There were 37 in Swansea and 29 in Southampton, which immediately is Wales 1, England nil in terms of religious observance. But of those 37, 30 were nonconformist chapels as opposed to 16 in Southampton. So immediately that demonstrates that we've got over double the amount of nonconformist worshippers attending chapel in, in Wales, in Swansea. The nonconformity factor really can't be underestimated because it's one of the major reasons why People go to parish registers, first of all, if they're used to researching English ancestors, they would start at the parish. But increasingly, the parish becomes diminished in terms of its coverage of the general population. And it becomes more exaggerated as time goes on. By the beginning of the 20th century, great swathes of the countryside are attending revivalist open-air meetings, very evangelical, usually in the Welsh medium. And the chapel is absolutely, as Ely said, it's, it's, you know, it's part of Welsh culture. You cannot divide it at all. Chapels were publishing their own magazines. Preachers were personalities in their own right. I mean, imagine having a name like Christmas Evans. I mean, that's got a certain chutzpah about it, hasn't it? This nonconformity is why you don't find ancestors in parish registers as often as you would expect. Early nonconformists were persecuted. If you look at some of the petty sessions and quarter sessions records for Wales, you will find people being prosecuted for holding meetings in their own homes, um, which was severely frowned upon. Find sixpence told off for, for encouraging uh, sedition, given a rap across the knuckles and don't go away and don't do it again. But of course, everybody did. And if you can find your ancestors in nonconformist registers, in a way, you've hit the jackpot because the information contained in those registers will be at an earlier date, pre-1837, will tell you far more about those ancestors than a parish register would do. They may tell you the birth date of, of the infant as well as its baptism date, where the parents lived, the occupation of the father, it will very often tell you the maiden name of the mother as well. So if you do have nonconformist ancestors, then you're, you're in for a treat because it's going to make your life certainly a little bit easier. If you do discover that you have nonconformist ancestors, don't assume that they're going to be buried where they worshipped because Wales was a pretty poor country. People tended to be buried closest to where they lived. I'm sure everybody else will have something to chip in about this because it's a it's a fascinating subject. John Colclough. The interesting thing I find with nonconformity, as well as the chapel aspect, it's it's not conforming to the church of the establishment. So from my kind of Welsh Irish background, the, the Roman Catholics were nonconformists in essence in the early days. And uh, the other thing I found interesting is that you had been married in an established church, but you would find baptisms and sometimes other records in, in the parish, as you mentioned. The other thing I found interesting looking into this in my own sphere is that it promoted the Welsh language as such because the Welsh language became ensconced in the chapel. So basically the only place you could almost speak Welsh would be in your chapel as well. It's a huge topic. It's probably a a podcast in its own, I suspect. Elia Daniels. It did generate a lot of political consciousness in a way, and it, it went, temperance movement came out of it, and then the first uh, Welsh-specific dedicated Welsh law came actually came out of the temperance and the chapel personalities who were, you know, the, uh, who advocated the Sunday Closing Act, you know, the closure of pubs on a Sunday. So that actually came from this sort of ripple effect from the chapel political consciousness all combined you know and the other aspect of this is migration because when the welsh left wales they would take the chapels with them so um, my family are london welsh my great-great-grandfather his entire life revolved around 
chapels and the Welsh community. His funeral was in a Welsh chapel in 1924. My granddad, who was just a little boy at the time, was taken along to it. My granddad didn't speak Welsh and he couldn't understand anything. It was <laughs> completely incomprehensible to him. So my great-great-grandfather, he lived in Sun Street near Liverpool Street Station. He was in the community around Hackney and Shoreditch and there was a big um, enclave there. Paddington is another one. If your family has moved from Wales, then you want to be looking at uh, where the chapels are and where the Welsh community spent their time because everything would be chapel focused and the chapels had links back into Wales as well. John, we've talked about churches and social things. What about the names that we come across in Wales? I mean, I research my wife's family up in North Wales and I look at a village and their family name is Edwards and nearly everybody in the, in the village is called Edwards and it makes it so difficult. And I believe this is something to do with a patronymic naming system. Can you explain a little bit about that and why that has an impact on surnames and names in Wales when we're researching? It's related to a, a Celtic thing as much as anything else. So the patronymic, in essence, is the son being named after the father. In Wales, it becomes John, son of John, would be John Ap John, or John, son of Owen, would be John Ap Owen, or John, son of Howell, would be John Ap Howell. So what you have is a is a family be able to be identified themselves in in a certain location by naming of the father and then the father then would be named after his father so you'd have john up john up howell up edward up richard all the way back so as impenetrable as it might seem if you have a little bit of lateral thinking and you actually come across a long-winded patronymic name then you may well be able to work out quite accurately the family that might be there because the names in a specific area would be local to that area the other thing that happens of course is nicknames are added in so if there are two john Ap John's, and one was a blacksmith, it would be John the Smith, son of John, or Ap John. It would map over to Scottish Macs and Irish Mac and, and Irish O's as well. So you, those names are, are pretty much disappeared now because they've become anglicised. So the, the, the sort of anglicising process of these names, that, that sort of Ap John would, yeah. um, am I right in saying that would then become Jones? And... Yeah, um, Ap, Ap Howell would be Powell. Price, Ap Rees. Price, Ap Owen. Bowen, Ap Owen. So when you go to a certain area and you see hundreds of people with the same surname, in essence, they are very, very unlikely to be of the same nuclear family that you might recognise in the English language. Did this continue in all areas of Wales for the same period or did it die out over time? It would have died out over time. It would have died out with industrialisation. The process of conversion to the system of yeah. fixed names um, began in the 15th century and then it continued through into the middle of the 18th century. And it did change out. And then how anglicised an area was, I suppose, and, and the economic factors in the different areas and the cultural factors. You will get it as late as the mid-19th century in some parts of Wales. Quite significant numbers sometimes. With women as well, because uh, a woman didn't change her surname, well, because it wasn't a surname when she married, which can confuse people. And you see that on some censuses, say on Anglesey, for example, you will see the wife next to her husband and has the husband's apparent surname. But then when she comes to be buried, her surname's different. And that's because it's her patronymic name. It's her father's given name that's down on her burial record, for example. And that confuses people so much because of that. And it is simply because in that part of Wales, and also in some parts of Wales where you think maybe they hadn't adopted a fixed surname, in day-to-day -day life, they still be known as oh, Margaret, Berch, um, uh, John, still. But this, it was just because they knew one another and they knew yeah. she was his daughter. I love it because it reflects the day-to-day -day life yeah. of the people, doesn't it? You know, the way they knew one another. 
and, and they weren't they weren't naming themselves so we could look into the past to uh, to write yeah. their family histories. Yeah. They were naming themselves for their own yeah. purposes. Yeah. Emma Jolly. So looking at how Welsh our family were, we, we can look at the census. Um, if we look at the 1891, 1901 and 1911 census, we can see for family in Wales specifically, then we can see whether they spoke Welsh, whether they spoke English or whether they spoke both languages. And then that might give a bit of a clue as to your family history approach. It's not on the English census forms, apart from on my great great grandfather's who just added it in himself because he was very keen on his Welsh ancestry. <laughs> From my experience, the naming system is confusing, but as you say, it can also be very useful in identifying an individual. And I can certainly say that I'm pretty sure that one of my wife's great-great-grandmothers, I think it was in the mid-19th century in North Wales, certainly, as Elia said, used different names when she married and when she died. I've also found that gravestones in Wales can be very, very detailed and telling. They're almost biographical in some cases. So moving on then from that angle of things, what about the Welsh language? We've heard about how the Welsh language is so integral to the social system of Wales. So Elia, if you don't speak Welsh, how much of a barrier is that to, to doing research and how can we get around that? Well, as far as the documents are concerned, the vast majority of them, so your, your birth, marriage and death records and the census records, apart from the 1911 census, the basis of them will be English, um, the, the occupations and so on and so forth. So that's no problem. I mean, the place names is a major thing, quite obviously. And it does feed into all the documents you will find, you know, whatever part of Wales, you will find a Welsh place name on the document. It isn't a barrier, as I said, with regards occupations on a census, but you do occasionally get an occasional uh, census enumerator writing some information down in Welsh, and you do get that sometimes. 1911 census, there was a proportion of the forms were printed in Welsh for the first time. These are the household forms you see with the names of the people living there listed. And they were generally uh, distributed to the west and the northwest of the country. I can't remember the proportion, but it's a small proportion. And it doesn't necessarily indicate whether your ancestor, or it doesn't indicate at all, actually, whether your ancestor chose to complete a Welsh language or an English language form. It just simply they were given a Welsh language form because they expected them to be able to, could only speak Welsh in those areas. Again, you will need a dictionary to hand to decipher and to translate those terms. Some of them, obviously, are stock phrases. You have wife, graig, husband, gór, head, penneth, and you have, obviously, the, the general um, occupational names like farmor, farmer, or amaethor, farmer, as well. But for other terms, you will need a dictionary. And also, you know, when you're deciphering the Welsh language on the place names, on the censuses, the handwriting can really, really throw you, obviously. So, and you can mix up, you know, certain names there. So you have, for example, Pontawine, P-O-N-T, but you may have Pantawine as well, P-A-N-T, which are two different words, completely different. Pont means bridge, pant means a hollow. And so... Really, really, when you get a Welsh word, whatever it is, whether it's descriptive as in terms of an occupation or a place name, then re magnify it up and really, really look carefully to see uh, what letter that is. Oh, and you also get lots of dialects on these forms as well, the 1911. 
um, dialect spellings. And that's the same for place names as well, which is one of the variations that you get. So be careful and keep that dictionary to hand. John, just moving on from the language, the records that exist for Wales, are they the same? We've, we've talked about churches and chapels. Are the records the same? Are there extra records or are there records missing in Wales that we wouldn't be able to find? Well, the one thing I would say about that particular subject is because of the sort of um, homologization of the of the records between Wales and England uh, when the registration was introduced, then many will be the same. I suppose specifically one thing that was spring to my mind was an 1841 census in Merthyr, in, in Dowlas and Merthyr, where that's large parts of that that are actually missing. So in many ways, when you go back to 1841, you can get yourself back to the, the turn of that century, which which is useful. And if the census is missing, you, you end up um, up a dead end. So a little bit of lateral thinking. One particular one I came across is you can, there is a place called Dowlais, which I mentioned, and there are cottage leases in that area. And the, the local factory leased cottages to the workers. You would get a list of workers in and around 1840 who were living in cottages in an area that you might not find in a census. So rather than being a dead end as such, you just move around the wall slightly and go wandering down another street and you can end up with the information that you need, which is quite a useful thing. As with many other places, parish records will get destroyed, not kept properly, kept in boxes, mice eat them. As, as in general, I think that's that's the case with records. So it, it's, it's really down to specifics. If you are actually looking for a specific person, you may well find that the record is missing, as indeed you might find in Ireland or England or Scotland. So it's, it's almost not specific to Wales, that. Jill Thomas? One of the differences in terms of looking at Welsh records as opposed to English, the gaps that you've talked about, John, and it's particularly, I think, prevalent in, in uh, when looking at poor law records, I remember the first time I went to Ceredigion Archives and asked if, to see settlement examination registers and they all rolled around with laughter and said, you must be joking out here, no way. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, there's a there's a project called In Their Own Right, which is being organised by Leicester University in conjunction with the National Archives at Kew at the moment. And it's examining the correspondence received by Poor Law Union boards after the 1834 Act. And the Welsh element within that project is quite distinctly different because, first of all, the correspondence tends to be a lot from women. And secondly, the experience of people beseeching the poor law guardians not to put them in the workhouse. Traditionally, there was a much longer experience of of administering outdoor relief to paupers within within the parish in, in, in Wales than there was in England. I think that the last... Paul or workhouse that opened in Wales was in 1879 in Ryada, and Wales took a lot longer to build workhouses. And this project in their own right has has uncovered what they call distance decay. So the further from centres of authority, further from the English border, the less likely it was that somebody was going to be incarcerated in a workhouse. So you, you do find these huge gaps in terms of finding records relating to the administration of poor law. And, and also, there's a complete difference in the way in which it's expressed, the administration of those regulations. And court cases as well, for the same reason, being detached from the main area of population and authority, as you just said, you know, that goes for if you're looking for somebody who t- took the father to court for, for maintenance for or non-payment of his maintenance for his illegitimate child, you're more likely to see a case going to court maybe in a town rather than somebody who lived in the countryside and travelled. So it's the same thing that underpins court cases as well. Hey, thanks. That's, that's really interesting. I think maybe a last topic. What about immigration and emigration in and out of Wales? Where did people come to 
Wales from and where did people from Wales go? So is anybody who'd like to talk about that? I know Emma's mentioned the London Welsh community. Are there other Welsh communities around the UK that, that... You have to look at the border areas. That's an important starting point because there was constant movement across those borders. So I have London Welsh ancestors and then my other Welsh ancestry comes through the Black Country, the areas of Staffordshire, Worcestershire, close Shropshire, close to the Welsh border. And then they were industrial workers and they were moving backwards and forwards. So they would work in a mine in Wales and then move and work in a mine in the Black Country until they settled in one area or the other. Because of my geographical location, there's immigration into the large port cities on the South Wales coast, Swansea and Cardiff, I mentioned Newport as well, large Irish communities communities from over the border in England especially in Swansea area there was a lot of Cornish surnames Trevelyan Tregothin Tregoning where, where people would come over for the, the copper workings that were going up in the valleys there it's almost specific to each port city there would be an immigrant community which in many instances lived separately and almost insularly to the native Welsh population, for want of a better word, which sometimes caused problems. And therein lies another genealogical research possibilities. If you search the local newspapers, there are a lot of them there were riots where people were arrested and taken to court, as Elliot mentioned earlier on in the court cases. So, so the, the, it, it's, a, it's a huge topic, immigration. And in the more recent past, the Italian, Welsh-Italian community in the, the valleys of the, have been two specific opening cafes and ice cream parlours and um, yeah. barbers, you know. That, so it's, it's a very wide topic. Yeah. Or oh, the Liverpool connection as well, major connections across the whole of the North Wales. Um, and so is, it's very similar to London, I suppose, in terms of uh, diaspora and strong links back to Wales as well, going back and forth. Yeah, I think, I think that's an interesting one because I know from, from my own research, one of my wife's ancestors from North Wales went off to Liverpool to have an illegitimate child and then came back. So there was a strong, I know there was a strong connection between that area. And also my, my father-in-law's family had um, members who seemed to have gone off to Argentina in the late 19th, early 20th century. So I know there's a, there's a big Welsh community out there. They were agricultural labourers in North Wales and the, two of the brothers went off to Argentina uh, named Edwards. We haven't tracked them out there yet, um, but one day perhaps we will. The two waves, one there, there was the Patagonia wave, which was just people just escaping to get a better life. And then you had the wave where your wife's family, with an enormous number, went out there to lay the railways in Argentina. My family went to Canada. That was in the early 20th century. You talked about a diaspora earlier, Anthony, and and I think compared to the Irish experience, the Welsh experience would would not be anywhere near that level of percentage of depopulation. I mean, there are now sizable Welsh communities, particularly in America. Quakers emigrated to Pennsylvania. And there's also an Ohio project about Welsh Americans that you can have a look at, you can find out about on the National Library of Wales site. And a lot of people went to Australia as a result of assisted emigration. And you can see the details of where people went from. There are registers that were printed of arrivals in Port Phillip, which was the receiving port for Sydney. I found one that was a young man from Pembroke. He was a blacksmith born in 1818. And in 1844, he decided to emigrate. So he travelled to Plymouth and he boarded a ship that took him to London. And then that ship took on emigrants and it moored off Margate for a couple of weeks, waiting for the right winds to take it down along the West African coast. Unfortunately, while it was outside Margate, a storm came in and all of them lost all of their belongings. Several of them died and they then had to go back to Deptford 
and wait for another ship. And then that voyage took them 140 days. It was a pretty intimidating process if you were determined to go all the way around the world. Um, And I think possibly New Zealand is the one place that didn't really attract the Welsh for some reason. Maybe they'd have a better rugby team now if they had, but... um... (laughs) There is a small Jewish population, especially centred around Merthyr Tydfil, and there's a project remembering those people, but there were a lot of Jewish commercial travellers. So again, they would be moving in and out. And some members of my family, they were in Merthyr Tydfil, and then they were in Bristol. And there was a lot of connections to Birmingham as well, between the different synagogues but there's Jewish graveyards around Merthyr Tidville. There is in Swansea as well isn't yeah, there? Yeah yeah I've been both St James's Garden a thriving Jewish community in, in and around the Uplands area the Dylan Thomas um, stamping ground. Thanks everybody I mean that's been a really useful discussion I'm going to finish with a couple of things but first can we perhaps go around and, and give our top tip for researching your Welsh ancestors. Jill have you got a top tip that you'd like to say uh, for somebody approaching their Welsh research maybe for the first time? We touched on surnames. When you look at civil registration you could end up with as many as 16 people with the same first and second name in the same quarter in the same registration district. So instead of ordering birth marriage or death certificates via centralised facilities always use local registrar because they will help you to find and make sure that you've absolutely got the right person. Um, Emma what about you have you got a tip for people embarking on their Welsh research? My top tip would probably be to look at the um, National Library of Wales website because that is a wealth of material there's some really great free material on there newspapers wills and other sources so that's a good place to start. John what about the tip of the day from you? The tip of the day for me would be be very wary of transcription if you are typing a name into a search engine you're reliant on the person transcribing it properly and and especially with the Welsh language it could go very pear-shaped. Thank you for that. Elia what about you? To make sure you've got the right place the right part of Wales to begin with because I've seen um, several people adopt maybe a baptism of somebody in North Wales, but they were living in South Wales on one census. I think to think, could my ancestor have actually travelled that far at that point in time? Because I have one of my very first clients actually was convinced that their ancestors were from Betasacoid, which is in North Wales. It's a tourist mecca, picturesque, beautiful. But I soon found out that they weren't from there. And I'm afraid I disappointed them with this. And I can say this because my mother was born and brought up in the parish of Bettos, which is near Ammonford in Carmarthenshire, which isn't quite as picturesque. And they'd been on holiday in Bettos, thinking that they were ancestors from there. And they were from Bettos. So they'd adopted the most prominent Bettos, which, which was Bettos, most famous one. And it wasn't, I'm afraid. Oh, well, thank you for that. I think we can all um, find examples of <laughs> mistakes like that we've made in our research. To finish then, can I just thank Jill Thomas and Emma Jolly, John Colclough and Elia Daniels for being our experts. They've given us some wonderful tips on approaching our wealth research. Some of the sources we've discussed and recommended books will be on the AGRA website that goes with this podcast. And if you are looking for a researcher to undertake your Welsh research, please start with the AGRA website. We've got some fantastic members and associates in Wales. That's what we've got for today. And thank you for listening.